Hi, my name is Jeff Redding. I'm a preaching elder here at Walton Community Church in Monroe, Georgia. Before we begin the sermon, our church would like to invite you to join us as we gather every Sunday morning for worship at 10 a.m. You can learn more about our church on our website at waltoncommunitychurch.org. Thanks for listening. Thank you, George. Howdy, WCC. Good to see everybody. Yeah, thanks, guys. I may not use the board a bunch, but I kind of like having it up here to, to talk about it. Um, so we're, consi- we're continuing this sermon series on Christianity and the culture. Um, one of the things I try to say every week is I'm hoping that this series will help us think about what's happening in our world today and how it affects us as Christians, how it affects the way we think and the way we believe. So we're going to be thinking about the culture. Uh, today I'm calling this sermon... Happy feelings or real love? Happy feelings or real love? And I'll, I'll explain why. You'll see that in just a little bit. Let me do a quick review of my last couple of sermons. So first of all, why this sermon series on Christianity and the culture? Here are a number of reasons. One is to expose the darkness, to shine the light of God's truth into the darkness of our culture, to shine the light of Christ into the darkness, not only the culture, but also in our own hearts. Two, I'm preaching this series for us to get wisdom. So I want us to gain wisdom. I want us to have a better understanding uh, about what is happening in the culture and, again, how it affects us. As Jesus tells us, we need to be as wise as serpents. We need to have wisdom. Otherwise, we're going to get run over. So we need to work hard to understand the culture and how it influences us. Um, Also, I'm preaching this series because God calls us to be watchful, to stay awake and not fall asleep at what's happening around us. And I'm going to ask you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 5. We actually looked at this in Sunday school, but I want us to look at it here in worship. This is 1 Peter chapter 5. Peter is near the end of the Bible, so it's like Revelation, and before that is Jude, and then it's 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and then right before that is 1st and 2nd Peter. So this is 1st Peter chapter 5. And I kind of want this verse to just kind of set the tone for today, for us to be thinking about, again, what's happening in our culture. So 1 Peter 5, and we'll start in verse 8. 1 Peter 5, 8. It says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And then it says in verse 9, resist him. So, The devil, our enemy, it says, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And what I want to stress is that the culture that we live in is not neutral. The culture that we live in is not value neutral. The world that we live in is under the influence of the enemy, the devil. And he wants to devour us. The enemy wants to devour our kids. And sadly, sadly, What you see around us, and I see personally every day, is that many people are being devoured. They're being destroyed by the lies of the evil one. They're being destroyed by the lies all around us in the culture. So we must be watchful, as it says here. We must be on the lookout. We can't fall asleep. We must be wise. We must stand firm and fight. We must be committed to the Lord Jesus Christ. Because, again, the devil is prowling around like a lion, seeking someone to devour, to destroy. So... I'm saying this to sort of set the tone because when we think about Christianity and culture, what we understand, this is not a joke. This is real. This is, this is spiritual warfare that's going on. 
and souls are at stake. This, this is a matter of life and death. Eternal, eternal life is on the line. So that's, these are all the reasons why I'm preaching this series. And also I want to say this, I want to keep saying this, I really do want us to understand the culture better than the culture understands itself. And one of the things I've noticed is this, when people hear there's a sermon series about the culture, one of the things they assume is that I'm going to talk about is we're going to talk about the craziest, most bizarre, most evil stuff happening around us. I'm not going to do that today. I'm not going to do that. I've mentioned some of those things in previous sermons, but, but I'm wondering, does, my thought is this, does ranting about how horrible our culture is, does that really help us in the faith? Does that really grow us in wisdom? Um, does it really cause us to grow and, and draw near to the Lord? Sometimes I don't think it does. I think it does help us to, to have warnings and be, to understand how serious it is. But what I'm interested in, and this is not as entertaining, frankly, but what I'm interested in is to think about why these things are happening. And what I found is when you dig down into the way that people think, what you find is that a lot of this stuff comes from the same root. And here's the part that's uncomfortable. Because most of the, the beliefs in our culture that leads to the craziness and the wickedness in our culture, most of these beliefs are very similar to ones that we hold to as well. Honestly, deep down, there's often not a lot of difference between the way the culture thinks and the way Christians think because the culture has such a huge influence on us and that makes us uncomfortable. But it's good it's good because it causes us to take an honest look at ourselves, and that's what I want. So I'm fine with not being as entertaining because I care a lot more about growing in wisdom and growing in holiness than being entertained, okay? All right, so first I want to do sort of a review. I want to look at what Christianity teaches about the meaning of life, and we may have some slides on this. We looked at this last week, but one of the things I want us to see, if you can see it, is that the meaning of life, Christianity teaches, is the meaning of life really is for us to have this eternal love relationship with God, to, to love God, right? To, to, that's what we're made for. God is the best, and we're made to, for him. He has a mission, and we are made to be in this relationship with the triune God. So our relationship is upward. The direction of our lives should be upward to God. This is what we're made for. He's the only one that can satisfy. Jesus Christ is the only one who can satisfy. Also, the self, we are made to love others. So we're made to reach out. So Jesus tells us, and he asks, what is the greatest commandment? It's to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. So it's upward and outward. That's the direction that our lives should take. Also, part of the, the mission of our lives is to be transformed. So I've got what we understand is, and the culture denies this, but what we understand is that our, we are sinful. The self is sinful, and we need to be transformed. God calls us to be transformed. So I've got Romans 12, 2 up there, talking about the renewal of your mind. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by having your mind renewed, your, your thoughts and your desires transformed, Okay. Also, I added this this week, and if y'all, I noticed last week some people were taking pictures. If you want to do that, that's totally fine. I've added here that the mission is not only for us to be transformed by God and grow in love and holiness and all these things, but also the mission is for us to be used by God to expand his kingdom. So Jesus gives 
the great commission to make disciples, to baptize disciples. God uses us. What an incredible privilege that God uses his people. He could go out and do it all on his own, right? But he uses his people for the expansion of his kingdom. For as the gospel goes forward, brings spiritual life. We're fighting evil, as we talked about. So this is part, this is God's mission, and he allows us to be a part of this, okay? So all these things are working together. The loving others, again, it's outward. Uh, we're, Philippians 2, 3, we're to consider others better than ourselves, all right? And I'm, we're going to look at the question about what it means to love others. Okay, so that's the mission. That's the goal of life. That's the, the meaning of life, and it all brings glory to him. The meaning of life is to glorify God and enjoy him forever, and this all brings glory to God. All right, the, the next we're going to look at is identity, and I think we have this up there. What, what Christianity teaches about our identity. In, in large measure, what our identity is, is first of all, our identity is, is centered on God. And what's beautiful about this is, I've got, I got up there that, that we are, the identity is created. We're created by God. We're loved by God. We're saved by God. We're purchased or redeemed by Christ when he died for us. So we belong to him. We don't belong to ourselves. We're adopted by God. We're brought into his family. That is who our core identity is. And that's really what I want for us to just instinctively, the way I describe it is on the, almost on the back burner of our mind. We're not even consciously thinking about it, but we know we belong to the Lord. We are his, even when we're not consciously thinking about it. We are part of his family. He is our father. We are brothers and sisters. That's who we are. And the beautiful part about that identity is it is fixed. Nothing can change that. Nothing. We'll talk about what the culture says your identity is, things like desires and all this stuff, and that's, that's fluctuating all the time. But what we understand is our identity is we belong to Jesus Christ, and that will never, ever change, okay? So my relationship with God and my standing with him are unchanging. So this is my identity. Also, and it's to a lesser extent, but it's still important, because we're called to love God and love others, this is the, this is the purpose of life, this is the great commandment to be in relationship with God. We're also called to love others, to love our neighbor as ourself. Part of our identity is also outward directed toward other people. And I've talked about this, that, that part of my identity is being a son, the son of Raj and Jenny. Part, part of my identity is being a husband to Andy. Part of my identity is my role as a father to Walker, Nate, Drew, and Shelby. So our identity is also, to, I'm friends with you guys. I'm a pastor of this church. I'm a citizen of America. It's outward directed. This is part of my identity. Now, again, my core identity is in God. But also with these love relationships, and notice I put out there too, responsibility, commitment, love. Those go out. Our culture doesn't like responsibility. <laughs> we don't like commitment, do we? We shun that. But God calls us to that. And it calls to love, and we're going to talk about what it means to love. So it's outward-directed, so we have all these relationships with, with friends and family and community and all these things with other people, okay? So this is, who our, this is our identity. Also, I've got the, the, the arrows going down, and I'll probably talk about this next time. The arrows going down, what I'm saying is there's a two-way action with our relationship with, with God and other people. We are called to love and make commitments, and our identity is found in God and other people. But also, God, the way God uses us, God transforms us, and he does it through his word and spirit primarily, but God also transforms us through other people. 
A big part of, for example, being married is not just to please myself. A big part of being married is God uses, even in bumping up against each other, God uses marriage to mold us, to transform us. He uses my friendships with you guys to mold me, to transform me. It's beautiful the way God works it. So he uses relationships with my kids, with my parents, with friends, with neighbors, even in my job. He uses all these things to mold and transform me into who he wants me to be. It's the same with you, okay? So it's a beautiful picture of how God works. And this is, again, this is part of of our identity about who we are. All right. Now, so this is what Christianity teaches. This is, but the culture that we live in says something very, very different. The culture says this, and I think we have, yeah. The culture, rather than being outward focused and loving God and loving others and being sacrificially and caring for others, and my identity is found in others, in the culture, the meaning of life is inward directed, Okay. So I'm going to flip this around. The meaning of life, and I'm going to give you some examples so you can see it. But in the culture today, the meaning of life is, as I say there, I say dignity comes through freedom and autonomy. And we'll talk more about that in future sermons to define my own meaning. But the main thing I want to talk about now is is people think the meaning of life is to make choices to pursue self-fulfillment and happiness. The goal of life now is for me to be happy and to be free to make choices for me to be happy, to pursue my happiness. I'm saying this too, the self is fixed, and we'll talk more about that in in other sermons, but but I'm not to be transformed. Remember the goal goal of Christian life is for me to be transformed, to grow in holiness, to grow in love. In our culture, no, you're not to be transformed unless you choose it. Again, this has to do with autonomy. And, and making choices. So the meaning of life, as I say there, is to follow my desires and dreams in pursuit of fulfillment and happiness. Okay, and so I say there, I should follow my desires, especially sexual desires. We're not going to touch on that as much today, but I should follow these, these desires and not suppress them because my thoughts and desires are my identity, my real me. But the goal, again, I want you to think about the goal of life in our culture is pursuit of happiness, my own self-happiness, okay? So that is the meaning of life, and our all, the, goal, the, the culture also says we have, we have identity, that our identity is found inside ourselves. Our identity, remember, our, for the Christian, our identity is found in God. We belong to Christ. It's outward-directed, and, and it's relationships. Primarily in our culture today, it doesn't mean that people don't have relationships, but primarily in our culture today, our identity is found inside ourselves, okay? So identity, and I've got up there, is my thoughts and desires are my identity. And you can see this in in the the, the LGBTQ plus stuff, right? That's not just my desires, it's it's who I am. It's my core identity. I've also got up there that, that rather than I've got God up there to the extent he is involved in my identity. It's only if he's going to help me. Okay, so I've talked about this with the MTD, the moralistic therapeutic deism. Basically, God stays out of my life unless I need him. Then he comes in and helps me. And then after that, he pretty much goes back to mind his own business. It's not about glorifying him and drawing near to him and living with him constantly. It's about me pleasing myself. And also... 
I, so I, I'm saying that my identity is I'm to be true to myself. So you'll see about true to self, the real me. It's who I am. I, you'll hear words like authentic, genuine. Now, let me say this. We are called to be vulnerable, but let me tell you the difference between vulnerable and authentic. Okay? Authentic says this is who I am, and you have to affirm me. This is who I am, and you have to say, you have to congratulate me, basically. That's, that's authentic. Vulnerable is different. Vulnerable, if I'm vulnerable, I'm saying this is who I am, but I want to change, right? I want to be transformed. So vulnerability is good. Being authentic and requiring other people to affirm everything I do, that is not good. That's self-centeredness. All right, so, and I'm saying here that, my, again, my thoughts and my desires form my identity and because all these things must affirm me or, or grow me in my happiness, I'm always trying to seek my own pleasure and self and happiness that I, when I look to other people and, and institutions or whatever, others, I always ask the question I've got up there, do these bring me happiness? And that's the question. If they don't, I dump them. If, that, if, I don't, if they don't bring me happiness, they're toxic. Okay, so there's no commitment there's no commitment. There's no self-sacrifice. The question in our culture today is, does it bring me happiness? And so the little goofy drawing I have at the bottom there, what I'm saying is this necessarily, this view of, of the meaning of life and identity, it necessarily leads to conflict. It's like, like the example I used last week. If you have one or two toys in a room full of three-year-olds and they're all trying to please themselves, it's not a picture of love and joy and happiness, is it? It's a picture of conflict and fighting and competition, and this is what we have today. This is why we have a world that is fighting and in conflict, because the, the core understanding is that the meaning of life is for me to be happy. So it's a zero-sum game. I'm not to sacrifice and to build others up. I'm to please myself, to please my own happiness, okay? That's it's number one. There's no God in this. We'll talk about it. It's all about me and my happiness. And I think we have some examples about this identity and meaning. Yeah, so these are just some random stuff I found. Love yourself like your life depends on it. Love yourself. Love self. It's inward directed. Be who you are. I think one of the kids says an Oakley ad, your identity, be true to you. Be who you are. One of the things I've noticed, too, is the kids, I think, are understanding this, and I encourage you and your families to find stuff that, I, that is false messages in our culture and point it out, right? Find those things because they're helpful. It'll help you start, start figuring out what's happening around us, okay? <laughs> Five ways to discover your authentic self. These are types of things that we see in our culture. The ABCs of self-love. It's about loving self, affirming self. Caring for myself. This is the picture of our culture. This is a MasterCard, your true self. See what that's talking about. Your true self is priceless. So it's the true you, your identity, your desires, all these things. Okay? All right. Let me give you a real-life example on this. And it's uh, a real-life example. Last year, the singer Adele was interviewed by Oprah. Okay? And Adele said that she divorced her husband because the way she put it was she wasn't in love with him anymore. Now, I'm not trying to pick on Adele or Oprah. I'm just saying that this is what happened. So she said she wasn't in love with her husband anymore. And what she meant by that is that she did not have the same wonderful, loving, happy feelings when she was around him. 
And as I said, I've called this sermon Happy Feelings or Real Love, and we're going to talk about that. But for Adele, being in love means being, having happy feelings or affectionate feelings. Okay? Again, the goal of life is for me to be happy. Okay? So during the interview, Oprah said this to Adele. She said, I've read where, now think about what it's saying. She said, I've read where you, you said you weren't miserable in your marriage. You weren't miserable, but you also knew you weren't happy. And so you wanted to bring a happy version of yourself to your son. So now it looks like it's giving. And, and then Oprah says, many women suffer from the same mindset, which stops them from putting themselves first. That's the goal, to put yourself first. So Oprah continues, she said, yet your own happiness is enough of a reason to make a major change. So Oprah is interviewing Adele, and Oprah said that this was a great message to women out there who also aren't 100% happy in their marriages. Oprah said that women are going to feel liberated by Adele choosing to leave a marriage that wasn't making her 100% happy. I found an article about the interview and from a popular online magazine, and it said this. It said, Adele found the courage to put herself first. She found the courage to choose happiness for herself. Adele overcame guilt to choose self-love. And when choosing you, it's important not to feel guilty about it. Okay, so that's the message of our culture. That's why I'm saying I'm not exaggerating, because the meaning of life is happiness and putting yourself First, literal exact words. Now, here's my response to that. All of that is a lie. All of it is a lie. It's destructive. It's all lies. But this is what you get when the meaning of life is for me to be happy. When even love is about me having happy feelings. And notice this, too, in in all this context with Adele and Oprah and the commentary on it. Self-centeredness is now redefined as courage. Self-centered now is defined as courage to put yourself first. Breaking your marriage vows because you're not 100% happy, it's not defined as narcissistic or shallow. No, it's defined as being courageous, putting yourself first. That's called courage. Being brave enough to choose self-love. So again, self-centeredness is now courage. Here's the thing. Marriage is not about being in a perpetual state of happiness, right? Marriage and any other relationship is not about having happy feelings all the time. But this is what people think of when they hear the phrase in love. Because again, the meaning of life is for me to be happy. But loving others is not about self-love and self-care or bringing a happy version of yourself to others. Love is about commitment. It's about taking action for the good of someone else. Even when you're not feeling it, right? Even when you're not feeling it. The crazy thing, people pretend like living for self and seeking your own happiness all the time. People pretend like this will lead to happiness for everyone. But it's utterly ridiculous. Living for self doesn't lead to happiness. It doesn't lead to happiness for you or for anybody else. Again, it leads to conflict. It leads to fighting and misery. In the movies... When everybody engages in self-love and everybody chooses happiness in the movies, when the meaning of life is being happy, then everybody's happy at the end. That's not the way it is in real life. In real life, it doesn't happen. Because if the meaning of life is for me to be happy, then everyone is seeking to please self, right? Everyone is fighting for their own rights. 
And other people are seen as barriers to my happiness. God is seen as a barrier to my happiness. And when that happens, again, here's what you get. You get conflict, fighting. You end up with a lot of lonely, isolated people. And this is where we are today. Also, this is an utterly atheistic worldview because it does not take God into account at all. There's there's nothing about God at all in this, really, unless he's going to affirm me and increase my happiness. He's my cosmic bellboy. That's the only way that God plays into this at all. But it's, so it's utterly an atheistic worldview. It's not about the glory of God. It's not about living for, for him. It's not about obeying his word. It's all about pleasing self. And, and in this self-centered world, in this atheistic world, which is the culture we live in, this must result in conflict. What I'm saying is this isn't an accidental byproduct. The, the fighting and the anger that we see in our culture today is not just an accidental byproduct of the culture. It's what must happen. It's the guaranteed end result when you have people living for self, when the meaning of life is for me to be happy. And the thing is, the enemy knows that. The devil knows that, and he's laughing because lives are being destroyed by it. So again, when the meaning of life is for me to, get, to be happy, then you get a self-focused world where everyone is trying to make power plays to, to please themselves. And again, a self-centered world is one that must result in isolation and loneliness. Because if everybody's fighting for their own happiness all the time, you, you, if you can't get along with anybody, you end up being isolated. You end up separating and being by yourself. In The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis, Lewis describes hell as this ugly, sprawling city with miles and miles of abandoned and boarded up buildings. And why does he describe hell that way? Because what he's saying is people can't get along with each other in hell. So they continue to move, and it's fiction, but it's a good picture. They continue to move further and further away from each other. They live just hundreds of miles away from each other because they can't stand being around each other. And why do they do that? Because they're self-focused. They're self-consumed. And whenever they get near each other, they're in conflict in each other. They're constantly fighting, so they end up moving far away. So each person ends up isolated and alone. And they blame everybody but themselves for their failures. So in in Lewis's story, hell is a picture of loneliness, brokenness, ego, misery, and focus on self above all. The irony is, I think this is where we are today in many cases. Because again, the meaning of life is personal happiness. So lots of self-centered people are fighting to please themselves. You can call it courageous if you want, right? You can call it being brave enough to love yourself. You can do all that. But it simply leads to hell on earth. And you're a fool if you deny this. I always get a chuckle when I hear the words the song Imagine by John Lennon. Everybody remember this one? I actually love the song. It's pretty. But this is, these are the words to imagine by, by John Lennon. He says, imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No heaven. No hell below us. Above us, only sky, so there's no heaven or hell. There's no God. He says, imagine all the people living for today. Okay, imagine that. Everybody's not living for eternity, not living for God, just living for today. He says, imagine there's no countries. It isn't hard to do. Nothing to kill or die for. And say, this is the key to him. And no religion, too. And then he says, imagine, imagine all the people. i got to sing it. Living life in peace, you you know. <laughs> he says, you may, 
You may say I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope someday you'll join us. And you know the words. And the world will live as one, right? So he says, imagine no heaven, no God, all the people, not living for eternity, not living for God, just living for today, living in the moment right now. And what's the result? They're all living life in peace. And I hope someday you'll join us. And the world will be as one. I'm sorry, but how stupid can you get? That is the dumbest possible thing. When people live for today and live only for themselves, you don't get everyone living life in peace. You don't get the world be as one, right? It's absolutely ridiculous. Young people don't believe this silliness. It's so stupid. And the reason, the fundamentally the reason why it doesn't work is because people are sinful. And the world denies that as well. But it's an, it's an attractive message, isn't it? Isn't it an attractive message? Do what you want to do. Please yourself. Seek your own happiness. Be brave enough to choose self. Man, that sounds great to me. That's what I want to hear. That, that, that's what we're hearing today. And then imagine all these people just living life in peace, right? Listen, when the meaning of life is personal happiness and everybody is living for their own happiness, again, you get conflict, misery, self-centeredness. When you reject God and you put yourself on the throne, you get hell on earth. And that's what we got today. That's what we are today. But thankfully, God has better plans. God calls us to something so much better. So I'm going to ask the guys to put the slide again, the slide up on the meaning of Christianity. We've said that as Christians, our lives are to be directed upward to God and outward to others, to love God and love others. These are the greatest commandments given to us. But the question I want to think about for a little bit is, what does it mean to love others? Right? A friend made the good point last week's Sunday school of defining the meaning. We've got to define the terms. What does it mean to love others? So as I said, I'm calling this sermon, Happy Feelings or Real Love? Is love about happy feelings? Or is real love something else? What, what does it mean to love others? And the thing is, even for us as Christians, our ideas of love are skewed because of the world we live in. Because in our culture, we instinctively think of love as happy feelings, as feelings of affection. We saw this with Adele. For her, being in love means happy feelings, affectionate feelings. And in her marriage, she wasn't 100% happy. She wasn't having these affectionate feelings all the time. In the same way, when we hear the phrase in love, oftentimes we think about feelings, about feelings of affection, feelings of love, about the pleasure it brings for us to be around someone. So even for us, when we think about love, we think about feelings. But what I'm saying is feelings are great, right? Feelings are great, but that's not real love. That's not biblical love. Biblical love is primarily about commitment, it's about commitment and actions to care for someone else. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 13, briefly. 1 Corinthians 13, the great passage on love. And think about how when Paul is describing love, he's not talking about pleasing self and me being happy, and my feelings, and being brave enough to put myself first. Listen to the language, beginning in verse 4. He says, love is patient and kind. Patience and kindness has to do with other people, right? It has to do with conflict. Patience and kindness. 
Love does not envy or boast. That again, has to do with relationships. And it's not boasting itself up. It is not arrogant or rude. All this has to, is saying the opposite of self-centered. It does, love does not insist on its own way. There you go. Love does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth, which is huge. Love bears all things. Bears all. You put up with a lot of stuff when you love because you care about caring about somebody else. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Endurance sounds like something you got to deal with, right? That's not nice. This is not about happy feelings. This is what love is from a biblical perspective, and this is true love. Love is commitment. Love is taking action to work for the good of someone else. Love is taking action to care about someone else, regardless of our feelings. Again, it doesn't mean feelings are unimportant. But one of the secrets of love is this. This is awesome. Actions of love will lead to feelings of love. C.S. Lewis wrote this in Mere Christianity. He said, do not waste time bothering whether you love your neighbor. In other words, don't, don't bother about whether you're feeling it, right? He said, act as if you did. Act as if you felt it. As soon as we do this, as soon as we actually love our neighbor, we find one of the great secrets. When you are behaving as if you love someone, as if you had these affectionate feelings, when you're behaving in that way, you will presently come to love him. You will presently come to have the affectionate feelings. Tim Keller wrote something similar in The Meaning of Marriage. He said, if your definition of love stresses affectionate feelings more than unselfish actions, so if you think of love mostly affectionate feelings instead of action, he said, you will cripple your ability to maintain and grow strong love relationships. And that's the way it is. Relationships, I don't care if it's friends, Marriage, kids, there comes conflict at a time because we're sinners. But if you emphasize the affectionate feelings, that's your primary. You're never going to grow through those relationships. And he says, on the other hand, if you stress the action of love over the feelings, you enhance and establish the feeling. Again, he says, this is one of the secrets of life, of living life as well as of marriage. So we take action. That's part of loving. Our culture says that first we have to have the feelings of love, we have to have the affectionate feelings, and then after we have these feelings, then we take action to care about somebody. The problem is that only, if you have the feelings, it only lasts for a while, really. And the problem is we can't command feelings. So if I'm waiting on feelings before I act, many times the feelings will never come, and I will not be loving other people. For waiting on feelings to motivate us, a lot of times they just won't come, and we won't be, we won't be loving. So we can't will ourselves to have certain feelings, but we can will ourselves to take action, to care about somebody, regardless of whether we feel it or not, or even before we start feeling anything. And again, the secret is after we start to take these actions of love, then oftentimes the feelings of love will eventually come. But we must remember again that love is not primarily a feeling. In the Bible, you see this. Love is not defined primarily as a feeling. For example, John 3, 16, how did God so love the world? Did God so love the world that he had strong feelings of love? No. John 3, 16 is for God so loved the world that he gave action. That's how he showed. He gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. He loved 
and he gave. How about this? How did God show his love for us? Romans 5, 8. Did God show his love for us in this, that he had strong feelings of love? And he sat with those feelings and enjoyed those feelings? No. That's not what Romans 5, 8 says. It says God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It's an action. That's what love is. So love is a choice. It's a commitment. Love is taking action, working for the good of someone else. Love is taking action to do what's best for someone else, regardless of our feelings. Yes, we want these feelings of love, but action and commitment should take priority. And then the feelings of love will come. Love is not measured by how much happiness, and this is again the meaning of, our, meaning of life in our culture, is how much happiness I get. Love is not measured by how much happiness and good feelings I receive from someone. Love is measured in my commitment and my willingness to give to another. That's biblical love, not focused on feelings. Action and commitment for the good of somebody else. And God has called us to love others in the same way he loves us. We love, why? Because he first loved us. This is our calling. This is our mission as God's people. All right, I'm going to close with this. We've got two competing views of the meaning of life, right? The world offers this. The culture says this. Again, the meaning of life is for me to be happy. And even love is about my happiness. But God has something so much better and so much bigger. Think about this. The whole course of history is about God rescuing people from death and hell. The whole course of history is about God rescuing people from darkness and sin. Rescuing people from self. This is God's mission. To fight Satan and evil and darkness. And in love, in love, <clears throat> God is res- <clears throat> excuse me. God is rescuing people from the domain of darkness and bringing into his kingdom, the kingdom of God, which is the kingdom of glory and love. It started with Adam and Eve and Noah and Abraham, and all the stuff in the Old Testament was pointing forward to Jesus. This whole course of history was pointing forward to Jesus. And Jesus won the war when he went to the cross. And he wasn't focused on pleasing himself. He took on, he took, became nothing, became a servant and died for us. Jesus won the war when he went to the cross and it was at the cross where Jesus defeated death and hell and sin and Satan. Jesus won the war at the cross. And he did that again out of love. Love is what drives God to rescue sinners. Love, the sacrificial love of Jesus Christ. This is real love. So Jesus suffered and died for us because he loves us. And then after Jesus' earthly ministry, God's mission picked up speed, really, with the Holy Spirit coming, being poured out at Pentecost. And every day, God is expanding his kingdom and rescuing more and more people and bringing them into his kingdom of glory and love. And all of history is pointing forward to a final destination, All of history is headed toward a culmination point when Jesus returns. And when he returns, he's going to make all things right. And at that time, Jesus will totally eliminate death and hell and sin forever. And God is going to raise his people up from the grave. 
He's going to give us glorified physical bodies, and we will live on a glorified physical earth, a new earth, and it will be nothing but unspeakable joy and perfect love, and we will be with our King Jesus forever. And all of this is for the praise and the glory of our God. This is where history is headed. And the driving motivation for God is his love for the world. Now, here's the amazing thing. While we're on this earth, we get to participate in God's mission of rescue and love. By loving God and serving Christ, by loving others and reaching out to others with the gospel, we get to participate in the course of history that God is guiding in his mission to bringing people into his kingdom. We get to participate in this. He allows us to be a part of this mission. And all the while, he's transforming us, his people. He's molding us into the image of Jesus Christ. We're becoming more loving and caring. God, through his spirit, is growing us in love and holiness. And all of this, again, is to the praise and glory of our great God. That's the message of Christianity. That's the meaning of life. Okay? This is what Christ offers Because of his love for us. Now think about how glorious that is. All of history heading that way for God's mission. Now compare that amazing message of glory and love to what the world offers. Our culture says the meaning meaning of life is for me to be happy. The world says the meaning of life is for you to be happy and then you die and then nothing. Think about how pitiful that is. I just want to be happy. I just want my kids to be happy. Don't settle for that. Don't settle for that. Don't settle for so little. It is so tragic to think that Adele and Oprah and people around us every day are settling for so little. Don't settle for such a small thing. Join God in his mission. This is the true meaning of life, to participate with God in his mission of expanding the kingdom and bringing life and joy and rescuing sinners from death and hell, all for his glory and motivated by love. That's the meaning of life. Not for pitiful little me to have happiness for a few years and then die. We settle for so little. It's pathetic. You know, Adele isn't wrong. Adele isn't wrong for wanting more out of life. Adele isn't wrong for wanting more joy. She's not wrong for wanting more love. But she's wrong because she's settling for so little. Adele's soul was made for Jesus Christ. And it's the same for you. Your soul was made for Jesus Christ, to be brought into his kingdom of love and joy, to be a part of his mission of bringing others into his kingdom and to praise him for all eternity. That's what you're made for. That's what you're made for. Don't settle for anything less. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father and our God, we love you and praise you. Lord, thank you that we do get to participate in this great mission. Thank you that you've got awesome plans for us of a new earth, resurrected bodies that will never die or grow old or sick, get sick. And most of all, we will behold your face. We will praise you and love you. And it'll just go on forever. It'll be nothing but joy and love and peace and friendships, and praise, and caring about one another, and getting to know people, and doing great work that we love, and being in your presence, and worshiping you. It's awesome what you have planned for us, and I do pray, Lord, that you would would help us, even as Christians, not to settle for so little, 
It's pathetic when we think about our lives. We don't realize that we're on mission with you and you allow us this great privilege. And God, I do pray for our church too, that we would be people who genuinely love you and love others, that we would be willing to self-sacrifice, that we would truly consider others, truly consider others better than ourselves. And that the world would see that when they come in our little church and they see us loving each other and loving you, that they would see that you're real. That Jesus, you are the glorious one. And you did all this for us, Jesus, because you love us. You died the death that we deserve because you love us. You had everything, Jesus, and you gave it all up. You didn't seek to please yourself. You suffered and bled and died and were shamed and were naked on a tree because you love us. Help us to remember that and rejoice in it. Thank you for your truth, Lord. Thank you for being here. Holy Spirit, I pray you'd work in hearts. They would turn to you in faith, repent of their sins, and truly turn to you and know how awesome it is to live for you. We love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.